Welcome to the SYA podcast, giving you teachings from the young adult ministry of Shepherd Church, where it's our mission to lift up Christ that the world might believe. We have different gatherings throughout the month. For more info, go to wearesya.com and follow us on Instagram at wearesya. Hello, my friends. I, I know Derek mentioned this, but I want to I wanna start with uh, just what we all have been broken up about. I don't want to take time to talk about my opinion or, or yours, um, because we're going to hear a lot of talking points from all kinds of angles and blame. And here's my advice. I know you didn't ask, but I have the microphone. Mourn, cry out to the Lord, repent, and search your own heart for evil in your life as I do the same. And so with this tragedy in Texas, I want to, here's, here's my prayer for us tonight. Psalm chapter 119, like the other weeks, it's a mix of verses. David writes, we are laid low in the dust. Revive us by your word. Our souls are weary with sorrow. Strengthen us by your word. O Lord, listen to our cry, give us insight, and rescue us by your word. Let praise flow from our lips. Let our tongues sing of your word, for your commands are good. O Lord, we long for your salvation, and your word is our delight. Let us live so we can praise you, and may your laws sustain us. We have wandered like lost sheep. Come and find us, Lord, for we have not forgotten your commands. And may that very last part be a picture of who we are as a church here in in this place, in this part of the valley. God, help us, forgive us, and unite us. Amen. Well, we're in in part four, and that means uh, chapter four of uh, 1 Thessalonians. We've been going through... First Thessalonians, we'll eventually go through Second Thessalonians. It, this series is called The Kingdom of God. And we've, we've looked at Paul's letter that he wrote to a group of new Christians in the large city of Thessalonica. And these are new believers, and Paul is talking to them about kingdom life and kingdom battle, kingdom courage. And today, we're going to look at what it, what it means to be a kingdom disciple. Now, the word disciple... It literally just means student, right? Like uh, all, all rabbis in Jesus' day had followers, had students. And there's this old Jewish blessing that says, may you always be covered in the dust of your rabbi, right? 2,000 years ago, uh, Palestinian dirt, right? They were following after their, literally following after their mentor, their rabbi, And in his wake, they would be covered in his dust because they were constantly following. And so may you and I be constantly following and trusting and learning to live like Jesus, our rabbi. May we be his disciples. And Jesus was clear in what he expects, his demands of discipleship for you and for me. Here's one example, Mark chapter 8, verse 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. So it's this paradox 
that, that only by dying to yourself can you live. He goes on in Mark chapter 8. He says, for whoever clings to their life will lose it. But whoever, this word can mean relinquish, surrender. It literally means ruin. Whoever relinquishes their life for me and for the gospel, Jesus says, will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul. So this idea of turning away from like our self-preservation, our right to revenge, to take revenge, this taking up a cross, the cross of sacrificial love and subversive resistance, relinquishing our lives in trust to Jesus, whether we understand it completely, his, his call, his demand, his command or not. Take up the cross, release, relinquish your life. I remember when Asher, my now 18-year-old, when he was three, he loved Buzz Lightyear, right? And all the Toy Story toys. And I would come home and we had this like attached garage so he would hear the garage open when I come home from work. And then he would run through the kitchen and he'd be at the door waiting for me, but he'd have his toys, right? And I used to take Asher and I'd pick him up and I'd fly him, right? And he would say, Buzz, shoo, shoo, because that's how he said Lightyear. And I would fly him through the house. And I remember one particular time where it like dawned on him the choice he had because he had all these toys and I'd walked through the door and I got down, I put my bag down and I said, uh, Asher, come here, come here. And he had this choice, like you could see it, you could see him working it out. He's looking at his toys and he's thinking, I want to get flown around, but like, I'm not going to be able to put my arm out like Buzz if I have all these toys. And it didn't take him a super long time, he eventually dropped the toys and came running because his toys were super cool. But at least in this moment in his life, his dad was cooler, right? I can't pick him up and fly him around anymore, <laughs> but I could. Then Asher released his life, but he found it, right? It's the paradox of Jesus's call. We surrender to Jesus because we trust Jesus. The one who died and rose providing forgiveness, peace, and a new way to be human. We are disciples of the rabbi. We are servants of the king in his kingdom. And allow me to not mince words for a moment. Whether you're Republican or Democrat or alt-right or woke left, if you're, pro or whatever else, those were just easy, you know, stones to throw. If your primary devotion is to a political or social ideology. Let me say the first part again before I say the last part. If your primary devotion is to a political or social ideology, then you are not a disciple of King Jesus. Jesus doesn't share allegiance. He doesn't do halvesies with like ideology. He is the son of God who died for the sins of the world. He rose from the dead and he said... Come on, peace, forgiveness, joy, love, it's all yours. But you are all mine, Jesus says. <laughs> Kingdom disciples. If you'll open your Bible or your Bible app, 1 Thessalonians chapter four, Paul's writing to this church, right? That he helped start. Uh, chapters one through three, Paul looked back at his time that he spent with them. He defends his integrity a little bit. He encourages them in Christian community. And then in chapter four, 
He's going to lay out some essential ethical instructions on how to be a kingdom disciple. So here's the first one in your, in your handout. Live to please God and do so more and more. If you want to be a kingdom disciple, you want to release your life so that you can find it in Jesus. Live to please God. Verse one says, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. When we were there with you, we told you how to live, how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Paul's about to give moral instructions. He's, we're gonna get those in verse three. But right here in verse one, he, he's anchoring those moral instructions that he's going to give. He's anchoring them to pleasing God. So he's anchoring these Christian ethics that are coming our way. He's, he's, he's anchoring them in pleasing God. And we learn this from Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter eight, he says, I always do what pleases the father. So if we want to be covered in the dust of our rabbi, we're going to be always trying to please God. A disciple's obedience shouldn't come from obsessing over self-righteousness. It should come from trusting that Jesus is good and that he is loving and that he knows best. Romans chapter two, verse four, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says that it is God's loving kindness that leads us to repentance. It's God's love that pushes us, inspires us to change. It's not our obsession about uh, you know, I gotta get it right, I gotta get it right. It's God's love that changes us. Paul writes in verse two, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. In your outline, the original word for instructions, it was a military word. Like a commander, you know, would give I'm gonna do this, instructions to his subordinates. I did this because like, if you're the commander, they're not really instructions, right? And these instructions that Paul gives, they come from the, from the top. He says it's by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Our obedience doesn't keep us saved or forgiven. That only happens by God's grace through our faith in Jesus. But we live to please God because we are saved, because we are forgiven. So in your outline, it's an easy litmus test for any decision. Here, here's the litmus test. Ask yourself, will this decision please and honor God? Second instruction of being a kingdom disciple in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, purity is God's will for your life. Everybody wants to know, what's God's will in my life? Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter four, verse three, listen, it says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. There's only a handful of places in the New Testament that say explicitly, this is God's will for your life. I'm gonna, we've got some of them up there. There it is. If you wanna take a snapshot of that, write it down, look them up later, you can do that. But John chapter six, it's God's will that you trust Jesus. Ephesians 5, live with wisdom. 1 Thessalonians 4, sexual self-control. 1 Thessalonians 5, spiritual attitude. 
joy, pray, be grateful, always. Hebrews 10, you'll, you'll be, it's God's will that you be made holy by the sacrifice of Jesus. And 1 Peter 2 is about living a good life, character. That's God's will for your life. So I want to show you, as we think about this idea of uh, sanctification, it's God's will for your life that you be sanctified. I want to show you just quickly some differences between the biblical idea of being sanctified and being justified. 1 Thessalonians 4, it says it's God's will that you be sanctified. Paul, the same person who wrote that in Romans 5, writes, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. So in, in your handout, the little uh, the box there, justified is being pardoned. We're pardoned by Jesus' work through our faith. We're pardoned, forgiven. Sanctified, being sanctified is a process of being purified. Justified is being declared righteous. Again, it's God's declaration based on what Jesus did through your trust in him. You're justified. Sanctified is a process of growing in righteousness. And finally, justified is a one-time act. It happens when you put your faith in Jesus. You're justified. You're forgiven. You're made right. Sanctification is a continual process. Now, just to double down and make this, I hope, even clearer, the scriptures are are clear that it's only by God's grace and our faith in Jesus that we're justified and saved. But because of that grace, that peace, that forgiveness, and that hope, we can live to please God. We can be sanctified daily. Now, there's a little bit of a paradox here, just like in Jesus' words, that only through dying can you live. There's a a paradoxical role that we play in sanctification. Uh, My favorite of of this in the scriptures is Philippians chapter two, verse 12. It says, continue, you, continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. Now, we could ask Paul, which is it? Is it? Is it me that works it out or is it God that works in me? And Paul would say, yes is the answer to that question. Now, if you're not a Christian, um, I just want to encourage you to try not to be offended at the next words we're going to read from 1 Thessalonians 4 because it wasn't written to you. It was written to Christians. And if you're a Christian and you're offended, well, verse 8 is for you, but for right now, we're going to read verses 3 through 7. How's that for a setup? (laughs) Here we go. It is God's will that you be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Verse five, not in passionate lust like the pagans who don't know God and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life. On your outline, Sex is good because God created it. When you read through the poetic creation narrative in Genesis chapter one, you see six different times 
as God creates different things, there's this refrain. And God saw it was good, right? On the first day, God did this, and he saw that it was good. And before the seventh time, it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created humans in his own image, male and female, he created them. In verse 28, it says, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. And then here's the seventh refrain in verse 31 of Genesis 1. After God had created humans, after he'd give them, given them a blessing and, um, and you know, encouraged them to you know, be fruitful and multiply, it says, God saw and it was very good. Right? All of creation, animals, you know, outer space, planets, everything, right? Everything was good. Human beings, male, female, multiply. Very good. This is, this is just in the Bible. Okay? It's not my, I didn't make it up. If you read like Song of Solomon, which you should be like 23 to read that. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> Everybody under that's like, I'm totally reading that tonight. Okay, good luck. It's, it's lots of poetry. But Song of Solomon and passages like Proverbs chapter five, verses 15 through 20, make it clear that sexual intimacy in marriage is a very good part of creation. So in your outline, sex is to be shared only in marriage. All the way back at the beginning again, Genesis chapter two, we get two chapters in. Verse 24, it says, Moses writes, for this reason, a man will leave his uh, family and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Now, technically, when Moses wrote this, the husband didn't leave his father and mother. It was more of a tribal living situation. The wife left her father and mother and family and tribe. But, but still, he writes, the Holy Spirit, and, you know, like inspires Moses to write, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. Even though he didn't technically, he did emotionally, spiritually, because marriage transcends all other relationship loyalties outside of the Lord. And sexual ethics taught in scripture are consistent all the way through. That sex was to be shared only in marriage for the purposes of intimacy and connection and pleasure and procreation between one man and one woman. And I know that's not popular in our culture. And it doesn't mean that same-sex attracted folks are more sinful than you or I simply for how they feel. There's conversation and empathy that's needed, but I believe scripture is clear on God's design for sex. And let me make a distinction real quick that may seem common sense, but the Bible doesn't teach that sex was created by God only to be between a man and a woman. That's not what scripture teaches. It's that sex was created by God to only be for a man and a woman in marriage, in the covenant of marriage. If you believe that sexual intimacy in marriage was intended in many alternatives by God, then I would gently ask, and I really do mean this gently, is your belief based on scripture or is it based on cultural acceptance and maybe some very close friendships? And, I, and I, I'm not being sarcastic because culture and, and friendships are powerful. 
So if I made any of my progressive folks upset, I'll see if I can even it out here. Uh, in 2008, during California's uh, proposition to make marriage only between a, a man and a woman, I was walking past a, a group of folks, adults, talking on a Saturday night um, here at church. And I heard this gentleman say, these people, in context, he was talking about gay people, he said, these people are going to ruin marriage. And I spoke to him later in private. I knew him. I knew uh, the couple. Their kids were in high school ministry as a high school pastor at the time. They had both been married to different people in the past. They'd both gotten a divorce, and now they were both living together, and they were not married. That's the context of him saying, these people are going to ruin marriage. And so I shared with him, with all due respect, he was older than me, and theology aside, gay folks aren't ruining marriage. Straight Christians who are getting divorced in droves Christian couples who are having sex and living together before they're married. This is ruining marriage far more than the small percentage of same-sex couples wanting to get married. I'm not trying to state anything outside of what the Bible says. I just want to state the super obvious of who's ruining marriage, if anyone is. And if you are same-sex attracted, listen to me, you're not other. You are not an abomination. You are loved and needed just as you are. How you feel isn't any more sinful than how I feel. Here's what matters. Living to please God and obeying God's word. This is what matters. It is God's will for me and it is God's will for you, whatever context any of us find ourselves in, that we would be sanctified, that we would avoid sexual immorality, that we would learn to control our own body in a way that is holy and honorable. God's way and word to us is based off his design for us. God knows best. It doesn't mean we always like it. It doesn't mean we always understand. His commands aren't to limit pleasure and freedom to optimize them. Sex is to be shared. I believe that the scriptures are clear. It's to be shared only in marriage. It's God's design. And if we believe God is love, then his boundaries and framework are for our good. In your outline, sexual purity is essential to walk in holiness. Paul writes, in verses four through seven, learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. It's, it's starting to baffle me now as I get a little older, this label of those of us who are Christians that were old fashioned, right? After, here's why. Not because I don't understand that like, you know, when it infringes on, you know, people's lifestyles, like I get, you know, I get that. I get the idea of progression, right? But after decades of overwhelming research that sex in marriage is not only safer, but it's more satisfying and better for society. And like, seriously, like that's what the studies show, all of that. 
that this to me shouts out that God's way is best for all people. But I want to say again, this letter that Paul wrote was written to a group of new Christians and to us who are believers. And almost as prevalent as, so let me speak to Christians is my point, almost as prevalent as the poison of pornography among Christians are Christian couples who are sexually active before and outside of marriage. I I meet more and more and more as it becomes more acceptable in culture at large. It just seems to be similar to divorce, just more acceptable within God's house. And many who live together, they hijack the language of commitment, right? But let me just, let me just not mince words again. Living together, it's basically, here's the unspoken sentiment, right? Like, you'll do, you'll do for now. Like, it's just good enough, right? Like, let's try each other out, but not fully commit, you know, in case we want to swap each other out later when we get, you know, a, a better option. Now, nobody says that. It's like, no, I'm totally committed to you. Everything except, like, you know, <clears throat> commitment. Now, you can push back and disagree, but living together before marriage is simply not a successful plan for marriage. Of those who live together before they're married, over 70% never end up getting married. I could stop there, but of the 30% that, that live together before they're married that actually end up getting, them, getting married, the, the percentages of those that get divorced skyrocket. That's why every time I've ever uh, done premarital counseling for couples, half are non-Christian, half are Christian, many of them that are living together, I always tell them this, right? And I try to be gent- gentle. These are people I have a relationship with. They're asking me to do their premarital counseling. My wife and I, I always tell them this. I did this with some people in my family. I'm like, look, I know you don't believe like me. I know you're not a Christian. So, but let me just talk statistics for a minute. You guys have been living together for a while. Here's what statistics say. And why? Why? Why, why, is there su- why is it such a bad plan for successful marriage? Well, I think a couple things. Subconsciously, sex before marriage reveals a lack of character, right? The, the, if you're, I'm talking to Christians now, that you don't know how to control your own body. And then, like, why as far as living together, is there, is there a an unsuccessful rate of, well, even getting married, but then once they get, to mar- get married, there's a divorce. Well, living together first reveals relational trust, distrust, because otherwise you just go ahead and commit and get married. Paul says, learn to control your body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust. Lust preoccupies the mind. It objectifies other people, it distorts reality, and it never satisfies Sexual purity is essential to walk in holiness. And in your outline, victory is attainable via the Holy Spirit. Verse eight, Paul says, therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction, he's talking to Christians, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. I wanna focus on that second part because if you want to please God, then you, obviously you don't wanna reject instruction like this that is so very clear from Old to New Testament all through the Bible. Probably the bigger question is, how can I live up to this? In, in my culture, in my day, in my body, my temptations, 
How can I live up to this demand of discipleship? Well, ultimately, God has given you his Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter five, Paul writes there, let the Holy Spirit guide your life. Then you won't give in to your sinful cravings. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now, we're not controlled, we're not possessed by the Holy Spirit, right? We're, gu- we're guided. We still choose. So Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, avoid sexual immorality. Immorality, that's a way of, the, the word literally, it's anything, anything sexual outside of God's design. So avoid that. Uh, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, you think 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is difficult. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, among you, believers, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. So how? How do you do this? How do you avoid, right? We have the Holy Spirit. He guides our lives. He, he, show, he shows us the way. We have the word of God. But okay, okay, that's good. How? Well, Paul says it. Avoid. And the, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, he says, here, here's the way he says avoid in this one. He says, run, right? Like flee, run from sexual immorality. Now, it's okay to feel like it's difficult to avoid sexual sin, to learn self-control, to honor marriage. Because anything of value takes work. It's difficult. And maybe you say, if you're not married, you might say, that's easy for you to say, Dusty, you're married. As if marriage makes you holy (laughs) or takes away temptation, right? For any of you that are not married, I'm just gonna bust the bubble. It doesn't, right? Like holiness, as far as sanctification on your side of things and the paradox of God working in you, but you working it out, you still have to work it out even when you're married. This is not a brag, but I'm just gonna say it. My wife and I dated six and a half years before we got married and we did not have sex together until our wedding night, which was difficult. We were young, um, but we were disciples. It wasn't a game for us then. It's not now. And many people that are wanting to get married, wanting a committed relationship, whether they live together first or not, they're looking for the right, the right person. You've heard this, right? I'm looking for the one. Magic, I guess. Now, whatever destiny is, it's determined by character, not cartoon fairy tales, right? I don't, I don't know how destiny works and how it's connected to God, and I don't, I don't even know if I like the word, right? But whatever it is, it's determined by character, And so Andy Stanley has this great quote that I've hijacked lots. He asks, are you the kind of person that the person you're looking for is looking for? Ooh, let me say it again. Are you the kind of person that the person you're looking for, ooh, would that person be looking for someone like you? Invest your energy in shaping yourself, not finding the one. Now listen, All the married people are like, amen. All the single people are like. Now listen, I do think another human being can challenge you and inspire you, but I don't believe there's a mystical missing piece person, right? That completes you, that makes you whole. That is something not, and when you're married, then you become one. 
In terms of completion, whatever that is, it's work, right? It's you working on you and him or her working on him or her. And, you know, you're doing that now together as one. Building character is a slow, cumulative process because it matters. Every day, microscopic choices, they may not seem monumental, but over time, they are foundational. Let me tell you another story that ends up making me look good, and then let let me tell you that there are plenty of stories that don't end with me looking good that will come out in other sermons. There's just the two tonight telling about my wife and I and dating so long and all that, and then this, okay? Just feel like I need to say that for whatever it's worth. But last week, I told you about this country club that my sister and I waited tables at, and there was also a very attractive uh, woman about 10 years older than me, and one night, we were working together um, and we were alone at the end of the night. We were closing down. It was very late and nobody else was, was there. And she came on to me. And listen, nobody would have known. Like, she was completely unknown to my entire Christian world. And I was flattered. I was uh, frankly shocked that someone, you know, her age and that looked like she did was interested in me. But after she said what she said and she walked back to the locker rooms, um, I left. I got, went and got in my truck and I drove home. And part of what I remember thinking when I was driving home is, because I was going to Bible college at the time. This was just a couple months before I asked Amy to marry me, before we got engaged. But I remember thinking in my truck on the way home, I might be able to actually do this whole Christian leadership thing. Like, and I don't mean that cocky. I just mean like, that would have been a scenario I never, like if somebody would just thrown that to me, you know, I would have probably said, oh yeah, I'd totally walk away, right? But you'd see it in my face, like he's not sure. He's not 100% sure, right? And driving away, because, because here's my point. I remember sensing that this was monumental. It was foundational. But I don't remember all the seemingly insignificant, small, daily choices that shaped my character along the way. It's a, a combination of being led by the Holy Spirit and learning to control your own body, avoiding and running and fleeing. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16 has God saying, stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you'll find rest for your soul. And I believe that is true. Here's the last third final instruction from Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter four about being a kingdom disciple. Love all people more and more. Verses nine through 10, he writes, now about your love for one another, we don't need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. In fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. On your outline, question, not our highest priority, which is to love one another. Like Paul, Paul really wasn't even questioning that. He'd seen it. And Jesus said, it's famous, you know this. Jesus said, love your neighbor as what? Yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. But, and some of you have thought of this before too, like if I'm supposed to love my neighbor as I love myself, if I don't love myself and take care of myself, then loving my neighbor as myself, I, I'm, I'm kind of shorting them. You know what I mean? So I obviously have to take care of myself too. And likewise, 
How can we love a broken, hurtful, messy, non-Christian world if we're not even loving our fellow Christians well? If we're throwing stones at each other, proverbially speaking, of course. So in your outline, quiet lives will lead to respect of outsiders and open doors to share the gospel. We're called to love, love each other. And once we, once we, once we get that, once we're able to love one another, then Paul ends this chunk of scripture that we're reading tonight like this. Make it your ambition, verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands. This word, um, what it literally means is agency with the means that you have. Just as we told you, verse 12, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. Character is everything because it's the only thing that you can really control. You can't control the world. You can't control what other people do. You can control your choices, your attitudes. And these two verses, these last two verses, 11 through 12, it pushes us to focus on our responsibilities, not everything else, right? Mind your own business, Paul, Paul tells them and tells us. Because under the surface of gossip and ranting on every social issue, whether to our friends, you know, in person or online, it's a distraction from our responsibilities. I think that's often, the, and again, these, these crazy little tools make it so easy for us, but we often just get distracted. We, th we think that our chiming in on every little thing is what the world wants and needs, but right? Mm -mm. Paul says, mind your own business. Work and support yourself, like work with your hands, with your own means. Now, this is not an attack on unemployment. Paul isn't condemning Christians who want to work but aren't able to find work. He, he's condemning Christians who, who could get work, who can work, but they choose not to. They're lazy. They're idle. And he's more explicit than this. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says, those who don't provide for their relatives, especially those in their own household, are worse than unbelievers. Like, how do you really feel, Paul? <laughs> um, well, and he also talks at the end about earning the respect of non-believers. By, ultimately, by living to please God and being responsible with the one life you've been given. This, this earns the respect. You know, some of the psychology, I, I, I've been teaching Asher, you know, for a long time and Silas now for a little while. And some of it's connected to being a follower of Jesus in the world and other times it's just being a human, right? Like, you know, when, when, when people make fun of or belittle a lot of times, you know, I'm not talking about like physical, you know, like, you know, defend yourself, get away, whatever. I just mean, you know, even some friends, like just throwing some shade or whatever. Like, you know, I've tried to help them see that when you get real defensive, oh yeah, you're, you're, then you're just stupid. I was terrible at comebacks, by the way, terrible. So this is part of why I learned this really quick because I was the kid going, oh yeah. And then they'd be like, it's okay, man. Hey, it's okay, bro. Thank you. But like, so I learned pretty quick to just laugh. Like if it was funny, if they were making fun of me, it was kind of funny. I just laugh. Yeah, I'm kind of an idiot. You know, whatever, whatever the thing was, right? Like you don't have to make, you know, treat yourself badly, I don't mean. But like, 
But it's kind of true. There's a similarity in following Jesus. There's gonna be people that, that wanna try to throw shade. Oh, you're a Christian, right? Ooh, oh yeah, what do you think about Roe versus Wade? And what do you think about, oh yeah, hey, you're a Christian. Um, this person over here is like this. What do you, what do you say to that? What do you, right, like, obviously there's a time to speak, but it's how you do that. It's how you live your life. It's how you work. It's the way you work. It's what you do when you show up to work. It's the kind of worker you are. It's the, are you an encourager? Are you on time? Are you responsible? Do you, do you make excuses or do you own your mistakes? Extreme ownership, as Jocko would say. You can look him up. But that, that kind of person, the kind of disciple that you are, that earns the respect of outsiders. You don't have to defend yourself as a follower of Jesus. Live your life to please God. And then love all people. And then just watch the respect and influence. And then, and then it can get difficult because you'll, you'll, people will want your opinion. And then it becomes even more like, ooh, help me, Lord, right? I wanna be wise. Next week, this is the last fill-in. Next weekend, next Thursday, for those of us that come here every week, God calls us to be people who live in the light of eternity. My friend and brother Caleb Walden is preaching next week on 1 Thessalonians chapter five. And the way that this chapter ends, I hope you'll read it, it's all about what comes next. The end of 1 Thessalonians chapter four actually ends with how do Christians mourn loved ones who have died? And chapter five gets even, it goes even beyond that. The second coming. Some, it's, it's an amazing text. I hope you'll come back. But before I pray, before I close this out, I just wanna say it one more time. Live to please God more and more. That purity is God's will for your life. And love all people more and more. This is a piece of kingdom discipleship. Discipleship of Jesus, the rabbi. He doesn't do halfsies, doesn't share allegiance. That he wants all of you. Anyone who would come after me and be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever releases their life for, my, for me and the gospel They'll find it. And those two questions Jesus asks in Mark chapter eight that we started with, when he says, what, what can a person give for exchange, in, in exchange for their soul? I mean, the answer is nothing, right? That your soul is all you have. And Jesus, I would testify, is good. That he is the only one who can be ultimately responsible for your soul as you offer your life to him. And so if you are a non-Christian and you know, you got invited, they were like free food and you came and it was awesome, you had tacos and you know, this wise guy is talking about all kinds of wild stuff in the Bible. Um, well, there's some wild stuff in the Bible, but I, I encourage you to keep coming back, learning, investigating, asking questions. But ultimately, my hope and prayer for you, if you do not know the Lord, if you are not a Christian, my, my, my prayer for you is not that you become a Christian. It, it's, it's bigger than that 
in my opinion, it's that you would become a disciple of Jesus, that you would come to believe and trust that Jesus was who he said he was, that you would believe that he died on the cross for your sins so that you could be made right with God. And then he rose from the dead, not just to prove that everything he said before was true, but also to give you a resurrected life, a new life right here and now. Not just heaven someday, amen to that, but heaven right here on earth that you could have peace and joy even in the midst of tragedy and chaos that by knowing God, you would find rest for your soul. If you'd stand with me, whether you're a Christian or not, if you have a decision or want to pray with somebody, we have some friends over here, some decision counselors who would love to pray with you. After I say amen, I'm gonna pray. After I say amen, you can head that way. They'd love to talk to you. When I came out last week, there were, there were several, there were a little handful of people going back and praying together. It was a beautiful thing. Pray with me, Lord Jesus, I thank you for my friends. I pray, Lord, that as we read this difficult but powerful text tonight from Paul to his new Christian friends about what it means to be your disciple, to give full allegiance to you. And of course, Paul just went for it and made it clear that, God, it's your will that we would be sanctified and that it's your will that we would love one another and that we would love all people. And in so doing, that it would be genuine and from our heart, but it would also earn, earn influence and the right to share how you've changed our lives. Lord, please give us an opportunity to do that this week with a friend, the family member, that we would be respectful and, gen and gentle and honest. But thank you, God, for the love of Jesus in each of our lives. Thank you for the community we have in this place here on Thursday nights, God. Thank you for Shepherd Church. We pray that you would continue to use each of us to be a light in this valley, in this city, in this state, in this country, and in this world. Lord, we love you and we pray this in the powerful, great name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for being at church. Love you all. Have a great week and weekend. Thanks for listening to the SYA podcast. Be sure to connect with us on Instagram at wearesya.com.